This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. Hello, everyone. My name is Erin Trelore, and I am the host of Raw Beauty Talks. We're taking you behind the highlight reel of the world's biggest influencers and wellness gurus to get a raw glimpse of what beauty, health, and wellness look like in today's world so that you can feel your absolute best in your body and in your life. Raw Beauty listeners, you are in for a treat today. I have Arielle Lore here from The Blonde Files. She is a health, wellness, and lifestyle influencer. But to be honest, when I started looking into your story, I was blown away by your life and what has ultimately led you to do the work that you're doing today, to have this conversation around health and wellness. I went to your Instagram page and I was like, this, this girl is literally perfect. You are stunning. You make the most insane, delicious foods, multiple cookbooks, working with incredible people, living this beautiful life. And I was so intrigued the more I dove in to your story to understand who you are behind all these glossy photos and what we might see at a glance. So, I mean, everybody just push pause for a second, go get yourself a freaking glass of water, pour yourself a tea. We are going to get into it. I'm not leaving any questions on the table. So we're going to talk about sobriety, alcoholism, depression, anxiety, gut health, mental health, all the things in this episode. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me on. And thank you for that intro. Like you said, the Instagram is the highlight reel. So (laughs) right now, like 90% of the time I'm in sweatpants, no makeup, like very unglamorous. You know, I make a few recipes in a day to batch the content. (laughs) Then when it goes on the Instagram, it looks like my whole life is, you know, this curated thing, but The highlight reel is epic though. And obviously like the highlight reel is part of your life, but I always love in these conversations to really dive beyond that because Mm -hmm. I think that's when we as women in particular have the chance to connect and to realize that behind these images that we see, we're all really actually very similar. So I tuned into your podcast, The Blonde Files. I'm going to link to the episode that I listened. The first episode that I listened to of yours was, hi, I'm Ariel and I'm an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. And I was blown away by your vulnerability and your strength and just the story of your life. So can you take us back to that first chapter when your relationship with alcohol began? Yeah. So... You know, it's interesting because I don't have the background that people might associate with somebody who goes on to be a raging drug addict and alcoholic, which is what I was. You know, it nearly took my life. It was very, very dark. And when I have looked back in hindsight, as I've done a lot over this almost seven years that I've been sober, yeah, I can kind of see how I was positioned to become an alcoholic and become a drug addict. But at the time, it seemed just so out of the ordinary. You know, I grew up on the East Coast. I went to private school. My dad was a doctor. My mom stayed home with my brother and I. I always say we had like everything but the white picket fence. We had the golden retriever and the Volvo, you know, it was like very wholesome. And nobody in my family has struggled with addiction or alcoholism. 
it was kind of a slow burn for me. You know, I was popular. I did well academically. I was involved in sports and extracurriculars, but there was just something inside of me that made me feel like I was just a little bit separate from everybody else. So from the outside looking in, you would have thought that I had it all and I felt great and I was confident and comfortable, but really I was like dying inside my skin. I was so uncomfortable. So from a really young age, you know, I would look for things outside of myself to make me feel better. So when I was young, it was like I needed like a toy, you know, whatever toy it was at the time. And then when I got a little bit older, it was like I need these clothes from like the limited two and like contempo casuals in those places. <laughs> but it was like on a primal level, you know, and I would get in these like knockdown just screaming rage fights with my parents if I didn't get what I needed because I needed it. And so when I got to high school and I was introduced to alcohol just socially, it was like the first drink. I always talk about it like it was a spiritual experience for me because it was like all of a sudden I could just breathe, you know, and I felt comfortable in my skin and I felt at ease with everybody else around me instead of feeling kind of socially awkward. And I felt confident. And it was like from that moment on, it was just on. And I just chased that and I needed that. And, you know, alcohol became my solution to the discomfort and the fear and everything that I felt. It also became like my primary purpose. So all of my ambitions really kind of fell by the wayside and just getting the alcohol at the time, you know, I was partying socially in high school, like a lot of us were, but over the years it progressed and it got really, really dark. It's so interesting, this piece that you said about feeling a little bit different. I think so many of us feel that way. Like I'm the one who's not quite getting this game of life. I'm the one who has this feeling within me where I don't quite fit in. And yet you, the girl who has like the family who's still together and the mom at home and the golden retriever and as popular and is doing well at school, even you felt that. Mm -hmm. to such a level that alcohol became a safe space. Yeah, you know, I look back on it now and I can recognize that I was so ashamed of how I felt. I was ashamed that I felt uncomfortable. I was ashamed that I felt like I didn't have this manual to life. Everybody else seemed to just know how to act and know how to be and I didn't. And instead of saying that to somebody, I built up this facade for years by the time I got sober at 28 years old, I had no clue who I was. It was really because I was just terrified to let anybody see that I was terrified. I don't know if I could have done it over again if I had just told that to somebody. I don't know if it would have made a difference. I think I was kind of destined to, you know, have my struggles and they've turned into my purpose in my life. So I'm so grateful for it now. But I can see that now that, you know, it was a lot of fear and it was a lot of hiding who I really was and how I really felt. In your 20s, were you the girl who like had it all together, kept the job, had great friends and like just had one too many martinis at the party and kind of like always got a little loud? Or what did your life look like in those years of your early 20s? So I started drinking around 17, 18. I also started doing cocaine. I was also in a relationship at the time that was very difficult. That was another addiction for me. I went off to Syracuse for one semester and he was still back home. And I just, for whatever reason, you know, I just couldn't stay there. And so I moved back home and I ended up getting a DUI. 
And, you know, I really, I had consequences from the beginning. So even when I started drinking in high school, for whatever reason, it just affected me differently than it affected other people. So I blacked out all the time. I would have to get carried out of parties. I woke up in the hospital a few times and and I couldn't figure it out. And that was another source of shame because I was like, well, why isn't this happening to my friend? And so I got a DUI and that kind of started this period of like real darkness. So I went to rehab for the first time at 20. I went to South Florida because I was like, hey, it's warm. You know, I got the DUI in like February in Rhode Island and they were like, you need to go to rehab. I was like, that's great. Like send me to Florida. Yeah. And yeah, so I went to rehab. I got out. I tried to go back to school. You know, I was taking classes here and there. I would try to get a job, but Like I said, alcohol was my primary purpose and I couldn't hold down a job and I couldn't go to school and it didn't matter to me. If I kept drinking, none of that stuff mattered. I was hanging out with really sketchy people and what happened after a few years of that, I guess I was like 24, 25 was my best friend got murdered and I found her. And so at that point, my parents flew down to Florida and they were like, we don't know what you're doing down there and who these people are, but like, you're coming back with us. And I moved back home with them still like blacking out, you know, I'd go drink like every bottle of wine. Like it just, at that point I was trying to treat my trauma too, you know, because I had experience that I couldn't deal with. So it was very dark. And then I moved out to California. I'm kind of skipping over a lot here and jumping all over the place, but (laughs) I moved out to California kind of on a whim. And again, a couple years of just partying, trying to hold down a job, not really able to, mm-hmm. just aimless. You know, I was just so aimless from 18 to 28. What was going on with your parents at this point? Like, were they freaking out that their daughter was doing who knows what at this time? Yeah. You know, I put my parents through absolute hell. And Of course, I couldn't recognize that at the time when you're in it, you know, all you care about is yourself. And it took me my first year of sobriety. It started really dawning on me how my behavior had affected other people. But, you know, I think on the one hand, they wanted to believe me when I said, "Okay, if I just get this apartment and I'm going to start taking classes here and I'm going to do this job here then everything's going to be okay. And they're like, okay, you know, so they were trying to be supportive. But at the same time, I think they were just absolutely petrified. You know, I got arrested for drug possession. The thing with my friend happened. I would get in car accidents. Like I was just always calling them to bail me out. They had no clue what I was doing. That that was the age of Facebook too. when like you would just upload pictures straight away and I was posting all my partying pictures. So they knew that I was like right. a hot mess. Right. But I was also really good at like saving face. Like I would see them in person and be like, what? No, everything's good. <laughs> you know, totally. alcoholism is a disease and it reminds me of my eating disorder. And when you're in this mental space, whether it's the food or the alcohol or the drugs, you become very persuasive and you can convince people, even your parents of whatever you need them to believe. Yeah. I remember towards the end of my drinking. So let's see, November of 2013, that's when everything started kind of spiraling. I was living with my boyfriend at the time in West Hollywood and he called my parents and was like, she is out of control. I mean, I was 
crazy, just blacking out all the time, doing cocaine all day, taking Adderall, taking Xanax, drinking morning to night. He was like, you need to like take her, like get her out of my apartment. And he wasn't doing so well himself. So that just tells you a little bit. He was a lot more functional than I was. So I flew home. My mom took me to New York for a few days and I went to see some family and I was just kind of like, no, it's, it's him. Like he's the crazy one and just totally gaslit them to the point where they're like, oh, well maybe it is him, you know, like who knows? And I actually returned to LA and he moved out cause he was like, I've had it. And when he, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, his words were this ship is sinking and I'm not going down with it. And I was like, okay, like screw you. You know, anger was my go-to response to anybody who tried to call me out. And when he left, it was like someone pulled the plug out of the drain. Even though he was doing a lot of the same stuff I was, he always was there to catch me and not let me hit my bottom. And when he left and there was nobody there, it got really, really, really bad. I mean, I was pretty much in like a months long blackout, not eating, didn't leave my house. I would just stay in bed you know, I was ordering alcohol and my neighbor was a drug dealer. So he was shooting me with God knows what. And I was having seizures and coming to and then having a seizure again. And my parents did a wellness check because I stopped answering my phone. And the West Hollywood police came and saw me through my window face down, unresponsive. They had to break through my window. They took me to the hospital. I somehow took the IVs out, left the hospital, went right back to what I was doing very dramatic. And at that point, my parents found somebody to help and they flew out and they showed up at my door and I opened the door and I had a grand mal seizure. And that was the end. That was yeah. the, the beginning of the end and yeah. the start of the next chapter for you. I've got goosebumps right now. And when you hear your story, you understand why you're so passionate about health and wellness and this conversation that you're having over at the blonde files and on your own Instagram page. Do you think our society as a whole has an unhealthy relationship with alcohol? Yes and no. I I think that there's a way to enjoy alcohol in a healthy way. I think that there's definitely an emphasis on like the yeah. five o'clock one. And, you know, I see it all over the internet. I yes. think I just like, for whatever reason, since I got sober, you know, people ask me like, oh, it must be so hard to be sober in this environment. And I'm like, I don't even notice anything about alcohol anymore. I tend to just kind of like move right past that stuff and it doesn't even register. But I do think that there is an emphasis on it. I'm seeing younger and younger women getting sober, which is great. That kind of tells me like, there is a problem in our society, you know, where these 19 and 20 year olds are coming to me, like, I want to get sober, but like, none of my friends are supportive. And, you know, I think it's getting a little bit better, but yeah. It's absolutely glamorized though. Like you don't watch a movie without seeing martinis or wine or alcohol involved. And on social media, especially in the last year with this challenging year, there's been so many jokes about, you know, like we're surviving on wine or we need to open the wine at two o'clock now because we've got to get through this day. And so I have no judgment about that. I'm somebody who's currently exploring my relationship with alcohol, which is why I think this conversation is so important. 
I've been asking people lately, what is your relationship with, with alcohol? And some people are very clear on the fact this is something they really enjoy. They feel no attachment to it. Like take it away tomorrow. I don't care, but I love a glass of red wine at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. And then there's people like me who are like, I don't actually know if I enjoy it that much, but Mm -hmm. I enjoy the feeling that Mm -hmm. I get from it. And as somebody who is more anxious, I know that it doesn't impact my anxiety well. So then I have to question why am I drinking it? But it's really hard when all your friends do. And it's just such a a normal part of this culture. I'm interested as people are listening to Ariel's story. If you were to ask yourself, what is your relationship with alcohol? And to just consider that for yourself. What if in 2024, you got a little bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. And if Babbel can help you speak a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a full year. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold, plus all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited Titan deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash raw beauty talks. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash raw beauty talks, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash raw beauty talks. Rules and restrictions may apply. We're going to press pause for a moment to share a little bit about this episode's sponsor. Apostrophe is a prescription skincare company for people that are ready to take their acne seriously. Prescription acne treatment really works, but it's hard to get. You have to take time off work to see a doctor and sit in line at the pharmacy for your medications until Apostrophe. Apostrophe makes it easy to see a board certified dermatologist online. You'll get treated immediately and your medications are delivered straight to your home. Simply fill out Apostrophe's online questionnaire about your skin concerns and medical history. Then just snap a few selfies and your dermatologist will get back to you with a customized treatment plan tailored just for you. The best part is that Apostrophe offers topical and oral medications so that you can treat your acne from the inside out and the outside in. Apostrophe treats acne and they can also help you hit your other skincare goals like reducing redness, wrinkles, and even dark spots. I tried Apostrophe and was blown away by how simple the online process was and yet at the same time I really felt cared for with the questions that they asked about my skin, the fact that the dermatologist looked at pictures and was able to pinpoint specific things that Apostrophe could support with. So to get started just go to apostrophe.com slash raw and click begin visit then use the code raw at sign up and you'll get $15 off your dermatology visit. That's apostrophe.com, A-P-O-S-T-R-O-P-H-E.com slash raw and use that code raw to get your dermatology visit for $15 off. And we thank Apostrophe for sponsoring the podcast and making this episode possible. 
Okay, the alcohol piece is one part of your story. Health and wellness is another small part of your story. I know you have a big life over there, but I want to dive into the health and wellness piece as well. It seems like, obviously, we know that this journey around sobriety comes into the health and wellness journey. It also sounds like there's a piece around gut health that really triggered you. Can you speak at all about that? Yeah. So this is an ongoing thing. Unfortunately, I seem to just be very susceptible and I'm starting to learn more about how this might be tied to my traumas and the drinking and all of that. But yeah, so I, when I was about two years sober, that's when I started the blonde files and it's called the blonde files because I was anonymous. I didn't want anyone to know my name. I didn't show my face. So I was like, Oh, this is cute. Now I'm like, I'm stuck with it. (laughs) Now we know you. Yeah. So I was a couple years sober and I was like, okay, I have the sobriety thing down. Like I'm doing well emotionally, but I, I didn't know how to take care of myself. And so I started on this fitness journey and kind of simultaneously, I had crazy bloating. And of course I had no idea about gut health. I mean, you come out of like a 10 year long blackout, you know, it's like gut health. What's that? I missed that one. <laughs> so I had no idea what to do. And I kind of just let it go for a while, unfortunately. And finally, it just got so acute. You know, I was having terrible digestive issues and it just seemed like I couldn't eat anything. And I went to a gastroenterologist, did a colonoscopy, (laughs) and he found that I had something called lymphocytic colitis. And I went on a steroid, a very, very high dose steroid that you're supposed to be on for three weeks. I ended up on it for like two and a half years three years, something like that. Wow. I had no understanding. I was just like, I've found the solution. This is amazing. And I tend to be like an instant gratification person. You know, I give me the band-aid, like (laughs) give me the pill, I'll take it. (laughs) So the acute symptoms went away, but I still had really bad bloating. And, you know, I was just like, this is not normal. A colleague of mine at the time, because I was working in behavioral health and working with addicts and alcoholics, he was like, you have to go see this guy in San Diego, Rob Yang. He's amazing. And so I went to him and that was the first time that I ever saw someone who looked at the body holistically. And we found that I had pretty much everything you can have underlying, you know, SIBO, candida, parasite. And he was like, okay, this is the game plan. You know, I already ate pretty healthy, but we tweaked some things in my diet and he put me on supplements and I actually weaned off the steroid over the course of a year and things got better. And I was like, wow, who knew? (laughs) This feels good. Yeah. And, you know, the brain fog and anxiety and all of that stuff kind of was alleviated. And I learned how it was all interconnected. And I wish that there was one thing that I was like, oh, this is what I did. And this is what to do if you're struggling with it. But it was really very individualized. But, you know, some of the things that I did do were like eliminating dairy and gluten. And now I'm much more lax because what I learned over time, because I got very, very rigid to the point where I was like, if I have soy, I'm going to get a gut issue and I'm going to die. You know, like it's so easy, especially with social media now and everything. It's like grain-free, gluten-free, soy-free, gum-free, sugar-free, vegan. Yeah. It's like, okay, well, what are, what are we left with here? Cucumber. (laughs) Exactly. But I got so scared of kind of relapsing with the gut issues that I got into this really rigid space. And that's when I learned a little more about how that was affecting me in turn. You know, when I'm, when you're sitting down to eat and you're freaking out about what you're eating, that's going to affect your digestion. And so I was kind of having gut issues again, but from how I was treating it. Yeah. 
I got to a point where I just kind of ran myself into the ground. You know, I was so rigid. I was exercising a lot. I, I take things to extremes and I had to stop doing everything. And that's when I learned to like slow down and everything in my body just started to kind of balance after that, it's like my body was able to like find its homeostasis when I just stopped trying to fit it into the box that I was trying to fit it in through my diet, through exercise. We're like chasing this perfect health that doesn't necessarily exist. And it's like whack a mole, you know, if you get one thing taken care of, then you have another thing pop up. That's exhausting in and of itself. Yeah, I started getting really into like meditation and and learning how to like be kind to my body. And that was probably the biggest game changer for me. Oh, okay. I'm so happy that you're talking about this portion of the journey as well. I think there is such a fine line between working on our health and wellness and figuring out what feels right for our body and becoming obsessive and trapped by it. Mm -hmm. And it all of a sudden becoming a really fear-based practice. And now our actions are no longer coming from a place of love and honoring ourselves but out of fear of what could happen if we stop. And I think, yeah. you know, anyone who's been in that space before knows it's not a very good place to live from. Yeah. I took time, but I learned how to really tune into my body and we all can, if we can do these little teeny tiny things, you know, to be more present, be more mindful. I'm a big proponent of transcendental meditation, but any, you can sit there just for two minutes, you know, in silence, just something to slow down we can kind of come back to our bodies. Cause I think we're all kind of living in this like little bit of a fight or flight <laughs> and oh, it's yeah. really hard to know what we need when we're in that state. It feels so unfamiliar and scary at first because mm -hmm. it's like, if I don't have the diet and the strict rules, I'm just going to lose control and go flying off the deep end. Mm -hmm. And so it really is a practice, as you said, of getting to know your body again. I mean, this is the whole premise of my program. The Robbie reset is about really stripping back all the rules and tuning back in with your body and connecting to those hunger and fullness levels again. It's a practice. It is challenging. Where you are right now, if I was to send you to an island as rock bottom, Ariel, and you could take three tools with you that were going to help you find your footing again, that we're going to get you off that island and into a better space. What three tools would you take with you? Meditation for sure. Is that a tool? Oh yeah. Meditation changed my life so, so profoundly. And I know that people kind of just tune out and like their eyes glaze over when I talk about it, but so profound, the before and after that hands down, I would also bring a journal mm -hmm. and hmm. Well, I was going to say my phone, but that kind of defeat does <laughs> you break your phone. <laughs> I was going to say for podcasts, like listening yeah. to podcasts, listening to talks. That's been very helpful for me too. Just you, we have access to anybody and everybody and everything. And, you know, I've learned so much just listening to Eckhart Tolle. I love Russell Brand. He's really he's funny, but like spiritual. He's yeah. amazing. So yeah, so more efficient bringing a book. A book? I think a phone is a little bit better than just bringing a book because I could get the book on my phone. I'm trying uh -huh. to 
get my maximum benefit. <laughs> I mean, you're very resourceful. Yeah. <laughs> you could get many books, many podcasts. You could even flip on Instagram if you wanted. Um, okay. So on the Island, you're taking meditation, a journal and your phone. Mm-hmm. You do transcendental meditation. What I love about the tools that you just mentioned is that these things are accessible to anybody. Mm-hmm. You've had a long journey in regards to navigating your health and wellness. And so I mean, you've seen top doctors in these areas, you've been to rehab, you've done the expensive things. And yet the tools that you came back to were truly things that we can all tap into and access. I would love to leave people with a couple of resources that have worked for you, whether it's a book, a podcast specifically, I'm so into Russell Brand's meditation. So I'm definitely going to pop a link to one of those in there right now. They're, they always make me laugh at the same time as doing them. Yeah. Are there any specific guiding light tools that have supported you? Definitely transcendental meditation. If people are interested, they can go to tm.org. And I have a podcast with a TM teacher as well. If people want to learn more about it. Favorite book. I mean, I read the Daily Stoic every day. It's one of those books that I've read for a couple of years and I journal in it and I take notes in it. And it's fun to go through the book again this year. And I see my little notes from last year and what I underlined two years ago and what, you know, and I think that there's so much value in that book. And a lot of the principles of stoicism are really aligned with the principles of recovery, radical acceptance and recognizing the things that are in our control and that, that are not in our control. Okay. Hold on. Now I have to ask a question about radical acceptance because Mm -hmm. I feel like this is something that a lot of women are struggling with. What does radical acceptance mean to you? Radical acceptance really is the key to my happiness. There's a saying in recovery So it's acceptance is the answer to all my problems today. When I'm disturbed, it's because I find some person, place, or thing, or situation, some fact of my life unacceptable to me, and I can find no serenity until I accept that person, place, thing, or situation as being exactly the way it's supposed to be at this moment. And it keeps going. But that really transformed my life and my attitude, and it really has been the key to my serenity it doesn't mean that you're just letting everything happen to you and you're like this doormat wallflower. And I can radically accept how everything is in this exact moment and still take actions to get to where I want to be or take actions against something that I feel is not right, you know, but it really helps me to just bring myself back into this moment. Like this second is all that we have right now. Like that five seconds from now hasn't happened. You know, five seconds ago is done. Like this is it. And everything in this moment is okay. I get so much peace from that. Such an important practice, especially for this time in the mm-hmm. world where so many people feel like the rug is being pulled out from underneath them. It can be really hard in this space to just radically accept. And yet that softening, as you said, is where we find the serenity. Mm -hmm. So what does that process look like in your mind? Because I imagine you still have moments in your relationship or your job or things that are happening in the world where you're triggered and you're like, for that moment, not radically accepting what's happening. Mm -hmm. How do you get yourself back to that place? 
Oh, I think part of it is kind of conditioning, like just having done it day in, day out for seven years. But yeah, I get triggered all the time and some days are better than others. Mm -hmm. But usually, you know, it looks like pausing, like I just have to pause. If I'm starting to feel like agitated, if I'm feeling triggered, pause before I act because my knee jerk reaction is always going to be, you know, triggered and, and angry and defiant and stubborn and whatever. Ryan Holiday actually came on my podcast and he was talking about this and talking about 2020 specifically. And he was like, you know, radically accepting something doesn't mean that we would choose it. I'm sure none of us would choose to be sitting here a year into a pandemic. You know, so many people have lost their jobs, lost their lives, but we can't choose it. (laughs) Again, it's recognizing the things that I can control and the things I can't control. And the things that I can control are really, at the end of the day, how I respond to things, how I perceive things, my attitude, you know, that's really it. I think 2020, if anything, has showed us how little control we actually have. So accepting it doesn't mean like that it's our first choice, but it just means that we can accept it. We can accept it how it is and, you know, try to make the most of it. I feel like that is one of the greatest gifts of meditation for me is finding the ability to pause versus just reacting right Mm -hmm. away or reacting and then finding the pause. And so I always think when I go to my mat or my cushion to sit that I am on a training ground for real life. I love it. Everything you're saying is tying together so nicely. Two more questions for you. What does self-love mean to you? Hmm. For me, self-love is is accepting myself and being kind to myself and, you know, not being rigid like I used to be and really listening to myself, giving myself the respect to take the time to tune in to it and see what I really need. Because it's easy to just every day, you know, pick up my phone as soon as I wake up and get on the emails and get on Instagram and do my work and get in school and do things for everybody else, which is important. And that makes me feel good but it's easy to neglect myself. And I think a lot of us do. I love that. Have you found since allowing yourself to soften away from that really rigid place, really like clinging on to this idea of health and wellness as it used to be, have you found that your body has changed in that space? Yes. My body responded favorably to being kinder to it. So many women and young women in particular write to me that they want to learn how to like eat intuitively and stop counting calories and stop counting macros, but they're scared like and something terrible is going to happen. And I think a lot of that comes down to like just this complete lack of trust that we have in our bodies and lack of acceptance. I decided I would accept what happened to my body, whatever happened. And and. And yeah, like for a whole year, this is maybe three years ago at this point, when I started slowing down, like I was just so burnt out from counting macros and over-exercising that I really didn't exercise for like a year. Granted, I've always been petite and that's a component to it also. Like if people are looking at other people's Instagram and people message me like, how do I lean out my legs? And I'm like, I don't know. Genetics, baby. (laughs) Genetics. like, like, yeah. We all have a set point that we were genetically born with. Right. 
going to feel easier for our body to stay in that space. Yeah. And I just, I can't imagine what it's like to be a young, like teenage girl right now looking at like these influencers on social media, no hate to any social media influencers, like, but comparing themselves to it because not to sound like Pollyanna, but we're all individual. And so I just got to the point where I was like, well, like, this is what it is. And we're just going to see. And I just, you know, was walking and then I started doing Pilates and low intensity stuff. And what I found was that I think I had a lot of inflammation from the stress of what I was putting my body through from, from the rigidity, from the, the rigid mindset and the rigid exercise. And, you know, I'm not so lean like I was, but I also didn't look good then. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so like I softened and my body softened a little bit, but it's been great. You feel good. Yeah, I feel good. so good. And it's really like, beautiful energy about you. You seem you. you seem calm. You seem serene and you seem at home in your body. Mm-hmm. And I can tell that you've worked hard for that. Not in a trying kind of way, but through life experience. You've earned that space that you're in right now. And I love watching you support and help other women. And I know you sharing your story will have other people reflecting and, and thinking about their relationship with everything from alcohol to movement, to the thoughts that they think about themselves and how they're treating their own body. So thank Thank you. Thank Thank you. you. If you were to send one email from that Island on the phone that you brought and the email was going to land in the inbox of every single woman tomorrow morning. This is your final email. What would you say to women of the world? Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) No pressure. Yeah. No pressure. Um, like be good to yourself. You know, I just, I think we're so hard on ourselves. Be gentle, be kind. I do want to add conversely, probably one of the most beneficial things that ever happened to me was A, to learn how to be gentle and be kind with myself, but also B, to know when to drop the self-pity. When I got sober, I felt like everything was happening to me. And it's easy to have that attitude right now. I think we can all kind of feel defeated a lot of the time. And I had somebody sit down with me and point out where my defects were and and how I was letting this attitude of, of self-pity hold me back. And so I think it's kind of this like balancing act, like how to be really kind to ourselves and also how to like take accountability for ourselves. Honestly, it's so powerful. I love, there's a saying and it's like, life isn't happening to you. Life is happening for you. Flip the script right now. Anyone who's having the pity party, which we all do, but flipping the script, how could this be serving me right now? What is Mm -hmm. life teaching me? How am I becoming stronger? What gifts are here waiting for me? Yeah. That would be my last email. Actually, life isn't happening to you. It's happening for you. I mean, it really is like the worst things that happened to me, you know, the trauma and, and I thought getting sober would be the absolute worst thing that could happen to me. (laughs) Those things are really like my greatest assets today. You know, the, the worst thing, it doesn't mean that I would like to go through them again, (laughs) but we can find purpose from our pain and we all have it. So you're a beautiful, beautiful human being inside and out. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. 
If you enjoyed this conversation, please take a moment to copy the link, send it over to somebody else who you think it might support. And remember, as always, your story, your body, your mind, your journey are unique. So take everything that we've talked about in this episode and think about what really resonated with you and leave the rest behind. Hey there, I'm Dr. Tracy Dalgleish, clinical psychologist and couples therapist. If there's one thing I know from both my personal and clinical experience, it's that we are really good at comparing ourselves to others. We tend to get stuck in the unhelpful narratives that play on repeat in our minds, and we struggle to set boundaries and create healthy love. Each week, I bring you clinical knowledge and evidence-based research, experiences of sitting in the therapist chair, and being a wife, mother, and business owner to talk about everyday issues we all face to help you you change the dialogue in your life. Tune in every Thursday to I'm Not Your Shrink wherever you listen to podcasts. While I'm not your shrink, I am still human and I'm excited for us to be in our vulnerability and humanness together.